Roman numeral one, the witness in Jerusalem. This first division, this first Roman numeral, begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which empowers the apostles to proclaim the gospel through Jerusalem and Judea. As a result, many Jews believe and likewise receive the Holy Spirit. However, as the apostles continue to preach the gospel, and as the community of believers grows, opposition to the apostles' message and the church increases from the, from the Jewish elite. It will be always the elite who is the primary drive and force and energy in the persecution of the gospel. This opposition increases until it reaches its climax and the death of Stephen, which leads to the scattering of the witnesses and all the events of the divisions after that. So what we're going to have in this first Roman numeral, chapters 1 through 8, is a very small time frame. This is all happening in 33 AD. In the same year, 33-34, the same year of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And what we're going to see is a community of people, of God, they're going to do things that they never thought were capable. Preach with boldness despite opposition. And what we're going to see is in the very beginning, people are going to be like, oh, wow, this is kind of cool, and this is awesome. I want to know more. And it's going to grow a little bit more like Paul. Now you should just stop preaching like that. That's not cool. Okay? And then it's going to become, not Paul, Peter. Peter, you should not preach like that. That's not cool. We're ordering you to stop. But then he won't. And then it says, okay, now we're going to hurt you. And then eventually they're going to become so enraged in chapter 7 that they will actually kill and then that is what's going to lead to two major themes. The scattering to the rest of the world and to the increase of persecution on the people of God. And so that's what we're going to see in this first Roman numeral is the building of the covenant community of God in Jerusalem as well as the increasing hostility and resistance to it until it basically hits its full powder keg and Stephen's final words in his speech is the spark that blows everything up. And just like a bomb, it scatters the, Gentile, the, the Jewish, the new covenant people of Christ into the four winds, so to speak. And that's what we're going to see. So in this first section, Roman numeral, or letter A, the preparation, the establishment of the apostles, Jesus ascends into heaven and leaves the disciples with the final instructions to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. While they wait, they cast lots to find a replacement for the disciple Judas, who had killed himself previously in the Gospels. The point of this section is to prepare the apostles for ministry. It's not exactly about, who is this new replacement, and let's learn more about him. It's not about, it's about them becoming complete again so they can be ready to expand the Gospel. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I wrote the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken to heaven and after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, to the same apostles also after his suffering. He presented himself alive with many convincing proofs and he was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. He was with them and he declared, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there. For what my father promised, which you heard about from me, for John the baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with this Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's speaking to Theophilus, because remember Theophilus was the original audience of Luke. Uh, we don't know exactly who Theophilus is, but he's called most excellent, 
which means he has a very high position of authority in the Roman government. Theophilus has this idea of one who is of God. Um, it's a Greek name, so many scholars believe that he's probably a, um, a Greek Christian who is, has a prominent authoritative role in the Roman Empire and is probably trying to navigate this Jewish-Christian problem or someone who's sympathetic to the Christian thing but doesn't know where it fits in. And, and what I say is this. Um, the Jews were a thorn in everybody's side. When Rome came along, they would say, you have to worship Caesar. And everybody would be like, okay, I already worship 50 million gods. What's one more? Not literally 50 million, but like big whoop. That's not a big deal to me. And Rome is like, um, and we're going to bring all these things of gymnasiums and really immoral things and abortion and pedophilia and prostitution, all that kind of stuff in your cities too. And most people are like, oh, yeah, we already do that. But when they came to Israel, Israel was like, no, 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 no. We went into exile for all that stuff. And even though they were not thinking this, but even though we're seriously messed up and we're willing to kill our Messiah, that's one thing we're not going to do. We're not crossing those lines of idolatry and morality. And in fact, if a Jew compromised and went into Hellenistic things, Hellenism is the idea of thinking and acting like a Greek and valuing things of the Greek, then they, they were ostracized. They were, they were inferior Jews and we didn't like them. Because of that, every time Rome wanted to do this, the Jews were like, we don't like that. And because they're willing to die for their faith, because if they're not willing to die, they go into exile and the Messiah is going to be delayed even more and they're tired of that, so they're willing to die, um, Rome had to keep crushing them. And finally, Rome exempted them from idol practices, worshiping of Caesar, and practicing and involving themselves in gymnasiums and theater where all this immoral stuff was happening because Rome's primary purpose is to keep the peace. Not keep the peace and can't we all just get along, but keep the peace like if you don't like us, we will kill you. And then there will be peace. But they didn't like constantly killing people all the time either because that's bad for business and money and all that kind of stuff and power. And, and so they said, okay, fine. You're this dinky little speck on the map in the Roman Empire. Nobody likes you or cares about you. Fine, you don't have to do any of that stuff. You're exempt. When the Christians came along and started spreading, the Jews were like, they're horrible, evil people or anti-Caesar. Okay, and Rome was like, ooh, that's one thing we will not tolerate. But then the Christians are like, no, we're the true fulfillment of Judaism. We're embracing the Messiah. We should be exempted just like the Jews are because we are the true Jews. Whether we're Jew or Gentile, this is what Judaism was supposed to be. And then as Rome constantly encountered them, you're going to see in trial after trial after trial, Rome is going to be like, what? This doesn't make sense. The Jews says they're horrible, evil people. But every time we interrogate Stephen and Peter and Paul and all that kind of stuff, and we don't get why they're a problem. In fact, we keep thinking the Jews might actually be the problem here. Luke is probably writing to Theophilus to try to help him figure out all these ideas. That really the problem with Christianity in the Roman Empire is not the Christians causing problems. The New Covenant community is all about peace and unity and embracing everybody and, and getting along. And not getting along with sacrificing your theology or morals, but getting along that you're valuable and you're important. We're good citizens. But at the same time, we are the fulfillment of Jews, and we should be protected like the Jews. And you're going to see that. At the very end of Acts, we're going to see them saying, I don't know what Paul's done wrong. Protect him, don't harm him, give him a cushy life in jail. But at the same time, we don't want the Jews to get mad and angry and cause another rebellion. So just throw him in jail, let him have plush hotel luxuries and cable TV and all the bonbons he wants and that kind of stuff. 
So they're going to try to wrestle with this. So it may be that Luke is trying to help Theophilus navigate this whole new conundrum of Jews and Gentiles and the Christians and all that kind of stuff. The emphasis here is that Jesus is being led by the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and then tells the apostles to wait until the Spirit comes to lead them as well. The very thing that led me, the very thing that went with me and guided me and empowered me, is the very thing that you are not to do anything until that thing comes upon you. He is now calling them apostles. From this point on, they are no longer the disciples. They are apostles. And the word apostle means the one who is sent. The one who is sent. Now, there's the apostle, generally speaking, who is sent. And then there is this specific 12 who are given authority over this new covenant people by the fact that God chose them and called them. And so specifically right here, the apostles are the 12. And he gives instructions to stay. And so he emphasizes here where John the baptizer says, I baptize you with water, but there's a day that one is coming who is greater than I who will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. Jesus says that day is about ready to come. That day that the prophets spoke of and that day that John spoke of is about ready to come. And you are to stay here and something like you're going to come. And he tells them, that they're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then they are to then baptize themselves in water to demonstrate that allegiance. This is what they're awaiting. Verse 6. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him, Yahweh, or Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He told them, you are not permitted to know the time or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Okay, so at this point, they're like, okay, I know that when the Jews came back out of exile, all the way back in 536 BC, one of the signs of God bringing the kingdom of God literally to earth and establishing the Garden of Eden on earth was a return to the land. So they're all like, we're returning to the land. This is it, Messiah, kingdom. Pagan's rear ends being beaten up, okay? All these kind of things, right? The, the river of life flowing into the entire world, the Garden of Eden, all this kind of stuff. It's here, 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 here. And Zechariah said, no, 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 no. They're still in exile. They may not be in exile in the land. They're in the land now, but they're exiled spiritually. It doesn't matter whether you're back in the land if God has not returned to the land and dwelling with you. The Shekinah glory of God sat on top of the, t- the tabernacle, and then it sat on top of the temple. And then when the Babylonians came, the Shekinah glory of God in 586 at the very end of Kings, Second Kings, left. Because the Jews were like, there's no way, you false prophet Jeremiah, that God would ever punish his people or destroy Israel because God is with us. And then God gives a vision to Ezekiel and says, I'm leaving. That's how you can be destroyed. You're right. You won't be destroyed if God's with you, but I'm not going to be with you anymore. And so when they came back under Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple. And the older people who remember seeing the previous temple cried. And the reason they cried is because they didn't look as cool and awesome as Solomon's, but they cried because the Shekinah glory of God did not return. And at that point, they knew that even though they were back in the land, exile was still not truly over with. And so they went into exile and they stayed there for 400 years. And now the Messiah has come. 
And now he has risen from the dead and he's shown power. And so the disciples are now like, okay, we have more signs now. Now we're in the land and now the Messiah has come. And now you're talking about spirit coming. And now you've been resurrected. This has got to be the time that the kingdom is coming, right? And that's what they're interested in. This is the question that they've been asking for a long time. When is the Garden of Eden going to come back to earth and eradicate all evil and all sin and bring not utopia, that's man's word for it, but a garden to dwell with God? That's the biblical definition for it. And so that's what they want to know. This has got to be the time, right? And Jesus answers and says, I'm not allowed to tell you when. You're not to know when. You're not to know when. But, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the furthest parts of the earth. He wasn't going to tell them when the kingdom of God was going to come, but he was willing to tell them the what and the how. <coughs> this is his answer. I'm not telling you the when. You humans are obsessed with when. Are we there yet? When is this going to happen? How much longer do we have to go through this, God? Is, when is the revival coming, right? We're obsessed with this. But God <coughs> says, my timing is not your timing. My win is not your win. I'm not telling you when. Because when I tell you when, you get all weird. You get exclusive, you get lazy, you get dogmatic, you get all these different things. But I will tell you what and how. What it will look like, what it will be, and how it will come. And that's what Acts 1.8 is answering. That's what Acts 1.8 is answering. And so what is this what and how? You will receive power. Power. We all like power. You may say you don't, but you do. In the very beginning of the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, Eve, you will desire to take the power from your husband, but he will seize and take it back. Because this all began with them saying, you know what, God? I don't think your law of what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is good. I don't think your law is saying that wisdom should not come from the tree, but it should come from you is good. I think we can write a better law. A law where the tree actually provides us what we want. And you know what, God? I don't think I like waiting for you to give us things because God always takes a long time to fulfill his promises and teach us and grow us. I want it now. And so the real sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden was not selfishness. It wasn't disobedience. It wasn't sin. Those are abstract concepts. The real sin they committed was autonomy. Auto means self. Namas means law. They became a law unto themselves. I'm in control. I can determine what is right and wrong, what is best for me. And when I do it, it will create utopia for me. It will get me what I want. And that's power. That's control. And when you argue about big things, like how did you go out and buy that without talking about it, to little things like what direction the toilet paper roll goes, it's all about this is my law, and it's right, and it's better, and you're ruining it. And this is what we're all about, power. When we have power, 
We use it to get what we want, and we're willing to hurt people to get it to different degrees across the spectrum. Maybe just slightly emotionally, or even just dominating them, pressing them to build an empire. But this is what it's about. But if you keep reading this, this is not the power that Chris is talking about. He doesn't say power to rule, power to dominate, power to build. At the very end of this sentence, he'll say, to be my witness. To proclaim God. To proclaim love. To proclaim sacrifice. To proclaim unity. To proclaim life, joy, hope, peace. All the things that Jesus witnessed and talked about. So if you were to be his witness, then you were to talk and think and act like he did. And that's what he, and this is what it means to be the image of God. The image of God is to reflect Yahweh and to make creation look like Yahweh. But we don't do it with dominance and power. We do it by dying to self. And we do it by serving each other. This is what he says. This is the power I'm giving you. Not the power that the world seeks after. There's only one true human who was given absolute power. And then what did he do with it? He gave it up at the cross. When we get a little bit of power, we exploit it. Either consciously or unconsciously in some kind of way. Now, I'm not saying that we are never altruistic or selfless. or I'm not saying that, but... You know yourselves well enough. They're usually laced and intermixed in a very confusing way that you can never take a knife and just perfectly dissect when one is in the other. I can't stop. And you know this, right? You're like, no matter how much you altruistically helped that person and took care of them, and you're really like, I did it for them. And then nobody acknowledges that you did it, and they leave your name out in the announcements, and that kind of you're like, wait a minute. I was doing that too. There you go. Okay, there you go. And so this is the power that he's talking about. The power to die, to serve, to love, to bring unity. And so you will be my witnesses. And so he says, power, when the Holy Spirit comes. The only way you can get this power is when the Holy Spirit comes. This is not a power that you have within yourself. It's not a Greek mystery religion enlightenment power. Okay, It's not I pulled myself up from my own bootstraps and built my company in my life, American dream power. Okay, now you may say, well, that wasn't the original definition of American Dream with the founding fathers. Don't really care right now. That's the definition of what it is today in America. Okay, we can talk about what it originally was, but right now it's not that. It's not that. It's when the Spirit comes. Only the Spirit can give you this. And when it comes upon you, upon you means it's an external thing. Yes, it will eventually be internal when it indwells you, but the source is not internal. It doesn't come from within you. It comes from outside of you. It is separate from you. It is not of your own doing or your own will. And then you will be my witness. This is what will give you the power. Now, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Biblically, definition, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to supernaturally empower you to do the will of God. Is to supernaturally empower you to do the will of God. God has a will for you, and the world is impossible to face and overcome and change. But the Spirit supernaturally empowers you to accomplish that will. Now in the First Testament, specifically coming out of Egypt through the wilderness and to the border of Israel, Canaan, and when they begin to enter into Canaan, God's will was to punish the Canaanites for their sin and then take the land. That was God's will. That was His command. 
And so when the Spirit comes upon Othniel in chapter 3 of Judges, it supernaturally empowers him to defeat the enemy and build fortresses for Israel. When the Spirit of God comes upon Barak, it supernaturally empowers him to defeat the enemy. Okay, the thing we talked about in Judges, you remember this, you play a little Super Mario Brothers, probably familiar with it, right? Okay, you're playing Super Mario Brothers and those who haven't, you're playing it and you're 3D, like 2D thing and you're running like that and you come to the block and you go, Ding! and you hit it and the gold star comes out and it starts flashing and what does the gold star do? It gives you supernatural invincibility, but only for a limited time. And you plow through all the Koopas and the turtles and all that kind of stuff. The only thing that will get you is pits. Okay? And you run. And you only have it for a limited amount of time. And if somebody was playing it and they just squatted and sat there and let the time run out, you'd be like, you idiot. You wasted it. There's like one per level. Okay? And that's what God is saying. That's what it is. I told you, Barak, that you could defeat the enemy and I would rout them for you. And then I give you the Holy Spirit. You're invincible. Because that's my will, and nothing stops the word of God. But Barak said, well, only go if you go, the prophet. And then he told Gideon to do it, and gave him the supernatural power. And Gideon's like, yeah, I need an army first, and I'm going to test you first. And, and then he came to Jephthah and said, I'll give it to you. And Jephthah's like, well, only do it if you give me victory. And if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice something. And then he kills his daughter for God. And then you get to Samson, and Samson didn't waste the Holy Spirit but he used it for his own glory. And so over and over again, you see the Spirit of God supernaturally empowering them to do these amazing things to defeat the enemy. But now we have a new purpose. In Matthew 28, God says, you will be my witness. You will go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's God's will. That is to be our will. That is our mission. That is our purpose. So the Holy Spirit that supernaturally empowers you is the same power now that was in Samson that allowed him to literally single-handedly kill a thousand people with his own fists. It's the same power that allows Elijah to run over 60 miles an hour for 13 miles to outrun Ahab on his chariot. And the same power that we see these superheroes and Avengers doing, and we're like, wow, that would be cool to do, is actually the same power and even more that is in us to give us the ability to overcome any obstacle in the gospel. Not to clobber people, not to fly, not to cling to buildings, and not to shoot lasers out of our eyes, but to speak in a way that you never could imagine that you could speak, to make connections in a way you could never, to love and forgive people in a way you never thought you could do on your own to endure the frustration of people in a way that you can never think, to be emotionally and spiritually and mentally healthy hours of time that you never thought you could do in your own strength. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. And if we truly believe that that's the same power in us as in Samson, then America could be a different place. And that's what Christ is talking about. That's the power we've been given. And maybe if it's God's will, the power to heal people, the power to raise people from the dead, the power to change things in a physical way in order to validate the love and the words and the message that we're speaking through the Holy Spirit. You think, oh, I can never speak to that person. You can. That's what Moses said, and God said, I'm with you. I can never put up with that person. You can't. God is with you. 
That's what we need to lean on. The best prayers that I've ever played, prayed are, I can't do this now. God, help me. I'm about ready to blow my top with my kids. You've got to work through me. And then all of a sudden, this unfathomable peace and calmness comes over me that I cannot explain in any way. And there's no breathing exercise involved. It just happens. Okay? I would like to say that I perfectly call on God every single time. But, <laughs> but when I do, I've done it enough to learn that he's real and he's there. But I'm too much of an idiot to actually consistently do it all the time. This is the power that Jesus is talking about. You will be my witness. Then to Jerusalem, state where you are. Start where you are. This is what God said. I have given you all the land from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. Three times the size of, Syria, of New Jersey. But you're going to start right here in this dinky little part. And you're going to build and rebuild and reshape this, this land, this garden. And then when you get that done, then you can expand. And so what God says is start where you are. Get your backyard, your own backyard cleaned up first. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to get everything sorted out and everything straightened out and be perfectly all done with therapy and all that kind of stuff to be for your witness. But the idea is, like Paul, he took about three years to get things right with God before he was ready to go out. Jesus went out into the wilderness before he was ready. To, there needs to be a little bit of a time when you first come to Christ that you're saying, I need to learn what this is and embrace it. And then you start where you are, your friends, your family, your neighbors. And then you go out. So you start where you live, Jerusalem, your backyard. And then you can expand. And it doesn't have to be you specifically. Philip is commended as an incredible disciple of Christ. And yet he never really leaves Jerusalem or Caesarea his entire life. But the church leaves. And the church goes. And then the church supports all the people who are going out. Because even though there's people going out, there's still a lot of people in Jerusalem and Judea that still need the gospel. And right now, we live in a day and age in America where the entire world's coming to us now through migration and, and travel. And then they're like flipping around after they get educated, some of them, and they're going right back out again. We actually have a greater mission field right now because the vast majority of them already are familiar with an English language to a certain degree or at least want to learn it and are going to want to be educated in a, in a, in a Western kind of way and then go back out. And they are far more successful with their own culture than we could ever really truly be. And so this is the go out. And so to Judea, so Judea is the region like Columbus, Ohio, okay, Jerusalem, Judea. And then to the neighboring regions, and not just to the neighboring regions, the regions that you hate, Samaria, that you don't like. For some of you involved in the Ohio State cult, Michigan, okay, okay, or the Democrats or the Republicans, okay, those are the people you go to. And then you go out even further. And the idea is from very specific to greater, lesser to greater. And this is what Christ is doing. This is the goal. This is our mission. This is our focus. What this means, though, <laughs> is that the kingdom of God, this is one of those verses that gives this idea that it's the already not yet. It's the idea that when Christ says, I'm not going to tell you when it comes. And you're like, well, 10 days later, that's when it came. So what the heck, Christ? Like, like you said, I'm not going to tell him like, oh, but you got to wait 10 days. For like a little kid, that's eternity. But for a grown adult, it's like, what? Why didn't you just tell him it's coming in 10 days? Like, come on, 10 days is not that big of a deal. 
which means the coming of the Holy Spirit is not really the full coming of the kingdom of God. And we know that because the full kingdom of God is the last two chapters of Revelation. But what it does mean is that the Holy Spirit is the inauguration, the beginning of it, and that without the coming of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the kingdom of God coming can never happen. There can be no second coming of Jesus Christ if there is no people already beginning to build a garden. This is where we get the idea. This is how God loves to work. We always want magic wands, events. <coughs> Boom, cured of alcoholism. Boom, a perfect parent that no longer gets frustrated with kids. Boom, you're healed, right? Boom, America has a revival, everything's great. That's how we want. We want events. And sometimes God does. Sometimes he does. But God likes events that lead to processes. Like, boom, you've conceived the long process of becoming pregnant, developing and growing the baby. Boom, you gave birth, the long process of raising a child. That's how it mostly happens. God has, boom, the resurrection. Boom, the Holy Spirit. It gets to a long process of building the kingdom of God. And so in a way, the kingdom of God has come but not in the way that they were asking the question. This is what God is saying. In a way, the Holy Spirit is not only just an immediate thing that you can have right now in your life, but it's also the beginning of a process that leads to an eschological event. Eschological means an end times kind of a thing, an end of the age kind of a thing. And so we're in this process. What we have to realize is that this is the kingdom of God in a way. We have the Spirit in us. The divine counsel is in us. God is in us. And that's the main focus of the garden, dwelling with God. But we're not experiencing in the fullness. And there's still sin and there's still evil. And it hasn't permeated and overcome everything. This is why we can't know the when. Because the when is a long process. But we can know the what and the how. And the what is the Spirit and the how is the power that he gives us. And if that becomes the focus, then God will give you what you need to not be in angst about, oh, when is it just going to happen, God? Now, I'm not saying you can never, you'll never ask that question. You'll never struggle with that. What I'm saying is it will never fill you with angst and turmoil and hopelessness because if you're really truly experiencing the what and the how, then you will be so in touch with God that yes, you will desire him like Christ, like Paul said, I'm Christ-centered and heaven-oriented. But it won't be so miserable and suffering. And I'm speaking to myself just as much as anybody else. This is why Christ won't tell us the when, because he's more interested in the journey. Remember, what makes Lord of the Rings so amazing is the journey, not getting back to Hobbitville, okay? The Shire, 